0: there's no place in the world like new orleans phil
1: um, me. We're, I are picking say this up I, in the middle yeah i always say i don't need drugs just give me a late beta and string quartet that's all the drugs i ever need mm. you're definitely speaking jack's language
2: there
0: <laughs> one of my best friends grew up in new orleans
2: hello hello
0: listeners it's the Stay off my operating table podcast <laughs> We we were having such a good conversation. I decided to just turn on the the record button. You don't know who we're talking to. You don't know what we're talking about. So I invite you to just strap them on and, and <laughs> hang on. Here we go. One of my best friends grew up in New Orleans, and it, it's almost a cliche. He was playing blues, blues harmonica in a bar as a young teenager he's the best blues harmonica player i've ever heard and i just i joke with him that it's just a law in new orleans that you have to play a musical instrument and you have to do it in a bar as a young teenager it's just it's the law (laughs) yep all right phil (laughs) let's turn this ship around before i take it completely off the rails
2: Sounds good. We might have to have the music episode of "Stay Off My Operating Table," but certainly good, good culture and good emotions that go along with fine music is one of the components of staying off my operating table. And that's a little bit of what we were starting to get into with our guest. The audience may have already guessed that our guest is not actually a native of New Orleans. Not quite a Bayou accent there, but really excited. We have Graham Phillips joining us today from across the pond as it is in the UK. And Graham is, I believe, our first pharmacist on the program. I
0: think so. I think you're right.
2: Go back through the memory banks and see if we've had another, but uh, certainly one of the most innovative uh, pharmacists uh, in the world uh, today. And uh, I was thankful to, uh, uh, I've been aware of him and uh, kind of interacting with him on social media for quite a while. Fortunate to get to meet him in person uh, a few months ago at one of the conferences and really excited to bring this conversation to the audience. Uh, So with that, Graham, why don't you uh, give a little bit of your background, let people know what you're up to and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure, sure.
1: Short version, I call myself the pharmacist that gave up drugs. Long version is this. Um, I was a fat kid, and I was a fat kid in a class of slim kids. And if you go back to that same classroom today, the slim kid is the old one out, right? Yeah. From being a a fat kid, I became a fat uh, adult. And yeah, I followed all the guidelines, and I knew all the science. Eat less, move more, you know, count your calories, all of that. Don't eat fats because they'll make you fat and they'll clog your arteries, so have more carbs, all of that, right? It's what's handed down to all of us, like gravity, who would challenge it. And then I qualified as a pharmacist, and I became quite passionate about public health. So I pioneered, for example, smoking cessation before it was ever a service within our National Health Service. And I realised that pharmacy could play a huge role in preventive public health, and I became quite passionate about that. Then we were able to uh, provide the um, emergency contraceptive, and I realised there was a, a role. But I was still getting hungrier and fatter by the day. So I had this kind of None of it made sense. And then out of the blue, just serendipitously, I watched, there's a, quite a famous, you might have, I don't know if you know this guy, Michael Mosley. I don't know if he's familiar to you, but he's a very famous TV doc in the UK. And there's a science program called Horizon. Oh, sure. And there was this Horizon episode called Eat Fast and Live Longer. And Michael Mosley went around the world talking to people who were basically not fit. And he was... Same as me, he was medically trained, Well, he's a journalist now. And he came up with something that we all know now as the 5-2 diet. So you eat 500 calories on two days a week and you eat normally the rest of the week. And I thought, well, I could do that. And I immediately lost 10 kilos. And then I thought, hang about. That's calories 22 calories- pounds in American. I do apologize. Yeah, we'll have to translate that. We'll have to translate <laughs> all the units. Anyway, I lost a ton of weight. And I thought, hang about, the amount of weight I've lost doesn't work with any of this handed down science I was told. So I thought, I need to understand what's going on here. Now, I know that pharmacists tend to be associated with the provision of medication. But if you look at a pharmacy degree, it's a very broad life science degree. So we understand cell metabolism. We understand the electron transport chain. We understand the Krebs cycle, or at some point we've learned it. We understand microbiology and how you can extrapolate to the microbiome. We do some genetics, and we obviously understand how drugs work, or, and also numbers needed to treat and numbers needed to harm. If all that sounds too complicated, basically we've got this fundamental understanding of the basic science of how the cell works and how the organism works. So it wasn't that difficult for me to go back and re-explore it. And I remember at university, I hated endocrinology, and now I love it. So at the same time, I bumped into what we now know as the public health collaboration. So I was really lucky to bump into Dr. David Unwin and other people, and it all began to come together. And I realised, I'm sure, just like you, Philip, that everything we were told is basically bunk, that Actually, it's not about calories, it's about fundamentally insulin and cell metabolism and mitochondria and the rest of it. And during the same period of time, I'd grown from one local pharmacy to a group of 10. And I'd become very senior in my profession. I was involved at a very senior level in our professional bodies. So I bumped into not just all the senior pharmacists in my profession, but senior players in the health service, in the health system. Uh, leading doctors dentists and and nurses and we won numerous awards and i thought to myself the drug spill is going up and up i'm making a reasonable living spooning statins into people but the one thing that isn't happening is no one's getting any healthier And then I realised, you put it all together and you ended up, I can see why everybody ends up in your operating table, Philip, because essentially we're not eating a species-appropriate diet. So I thought, okay, for all the awards I've won, none of this is really satisfying me professionally. I started to understand the science and... And again, it was all sort of serendipitous. All these things happened at the same time that continual blood glucose monitors became available through pharmacies. And one of my friends was a guy called Jeremy. I can talk about Jeremy because I've got his permission to do so. He's on my website. And Jeremy and I had known each other since our mid-20s. And he was a serial health entrepreneur, very wealthy, very successful guy, but with a background in engineering. And he wasn't particularly overweight, but he was hypertensive. And he'd been hypertensive from sort of mid-20s. Now, Jeremy being Jeremy, he wasn't going to go and see his local GP. He was seeing one of the lead country's leading cardiologists. And by this stage, he'd seen this guy for like 20 years. And every time he went back, they'd add another dose or another drug or another dose and another drug. And by the stage we were talking, he was on five drugs. They just added doxazacin to the mix of drugs. Now, in fairness, he was doing a pretty good job of controlling his blood pressure. Box ticked, but he wasn't feeling great. So I said, listen, Jem, you'll love this with your sort of entrepreneurial and your engineering background. And I slept to continual blood glucose monitor. And he was my very first patient. Next morning, massive blood glucose spike. I sent him a tweet. What did you eat for breakfast, Jeremy? He said, oh, my usual morning, all brand. What could possibly go wrong? So I said, Jem, that is just sugar. Who knew? What do I have for breakfast, Graham? I said, have an omelette, a cheese omelette one day, an egg omelette the next day, an egg oh, you know, egg and avocado the next day. Within four weeks, he'd lost 10 kilos. He was eating more calories, if anything, wasn't calorie counting, and his blood pressure started to come down. What uh, The only change he made was what he had for breakfast? No. I mean, that was the beginning, Jack. But okay. over time, he started to see, because we were gamifying, he could see in real time how what he was eating was affecting his blood glucose. And over a period of time, I just modulated his diet. And I didn't know that much, but I knew enough to know what spikes sugar and what doesn't and what spikes insulin and what doesn't. So it was very, very early doors for me. So now his blood pressure was in his boots because he was taking all these drugs. So he said, what do I do? I said, well, I can do it. One of the NHS services we have in the UK is something called a medicine's use review. So I said to him, look, I could do an MUR for you, Gem, but why don't you go back and see the cardiologist? By the time he got to see the cardio, was I think it was week 12. He'd lost 23 kilos by then.
0: This is the word. Right? Three months. Three months. Five, Almost 50 pounds. Yeah. Over 50 pounds, Down.
1: yeah. Yeah. So he goes back to this guy. And remember, he's been seeing this guy for 20 years. And every single <laughs> time, the guy added another dose or another drug. And the cardiologist said to him, I've never seen anything like this in my entire professional life. And overnight, halved his medication. Anyway, we're now three or four years on. As far as I know, the only drug that Jeremy is now taking is a statin, because I can't convince him he doesn't need it. Yeah. I'm a scientist, and I know that everyone's got one wonderful story about a snake hole that worked for one person and nobody else. So I was very well aware that you could extrapolate that to mean absolutely nothing. Right. I make no claim. But then I thought, okay, this is interesting. Let's try it on a few other people and blow me down whether they were, you know, whoever came to me who tried it got better. It didn't matter what their ethnicity is, what their age was, what their weight was. Everyone started to improve. So I thought I'm on to something here. I need to (laughs) understand this. And from that was born the ProLongevity Programme. And from that has made me pursue all of the science that underlies it, because I now know we can't carry on as we are. And there is a different paradigm in town. And I need to understand it if I'm going to promote it. And a year ago was uh, appointed as a trustee of the Public Health Collaboration, because I realised if we want to change this, all of us working in isolation isn't going to fix it. We need to work worldwide as a collaborative. In a both top down and bottom up sort of create a social movement for change. If we're going to change the paradigm, so that's the long answer.
2: Yeah, and, and certainly, I think a lot of our audience is sitting there saying, "Well, Graham's story is is exactly my story. The only difference being I went into cardiac surgery and now saying how do we stop people from needing cardiac surgery, and you went into pharmacy and you're saying how do we get people off all of these medications that. I'm supposed to be pushing, essentially. And the answer for both of us really started with our own dissatisfaction with the results we were getting, both for ourselves and our patients, and then got revealed when we kind of circled back to the basic science and said, what's going on here? How do we actually fix these problems instead of just putting Band-Aids on them? So I think that that's really amazing. Talk a little bit about the unique position that I think pharmacists are in, because they really are seeing the holistic picture of the patient in front of them. All too often, and I don't think this really differs much between the UK and and, uh, the U.S., People are going to all of their different practitioners, all their different doctors, and the doctor is focused on their area of specialty, their issue. And so they're prescribing the medications that go with that. Uh, But they're really not looking at the overall picture. And one of the opportunities is the, the patient is getting all those medications filled at a pharmacy, and the pharmacist oftentimes is the one that's saying, look at all of this, we'll catch interactions that maybe practitioners may not be aware of. But the pharmacist does get a sort of
1: holistic view of what's going on with the patient. Yeah. So I want to caveat this by this is not me wanting to criticize all my medical colleagues or all my pharmacy colleagues. I'm just relating my experiences here because we want to take people with us on this journey, not alienate them. Right. So. Two things. One is there's a kind of psychosocial aspect to this. Certainly in the UK, I think there is a greater dominance of GPs in primary care than in the US. And I was discussing this with Tro, I had Tro in the podcast. I know there's been some kind of reverse takeover of families, physicians, essentially by the pharma industry, because if they know they've got the family physician in their pockets, in effect, they get more referrals to the hospital and more prescribing. That balance is less of a problem here. There's greater independence. But also the, the relationship between patients or and the public and the pharmacist tends to be one of equals. Whereas with doctors, it's a bit more hierarchical. It can be parent-child. And I used to have very a lot of experience of this back in the days when I was pioneering smoking cessation. Local GPs who were not offering it because it wasn't an NHS service would send people to me. And the first thing I say was, how many fags do you smoke? And the patient would say something like, well, I told the doc it was 10, but I can tell you it's actually 20. (laughs) And, of course, that applies to everything. So there's that aspect. There's also the aspect that typically a patient might see their doctor once a month, but they might see us once a week. And when was the last time you ever went to your family doctor and said, I've come to see you because I'm feeling really well? It doesn't happen. Right. Why are you here then? Right. Whereas they're in and out of the pharmacy for all sorts of things. So it's all of those things that you can leverage. Let me put this in another context. I don't know the figures in the States, but I certainly know them in in the UK, which is on a day. Community pharmacists give a total of two million pieces of health advice per day. That is more opportunities to see or opportunities to influence than the rest of the system put together. So the potential to le- to leverage the fact that we're very community based, we're stitched into the lives of people, and we see them so frequently, is such an obvious public health opportunity waiting to happen. Right?
0: Hmm. Yeah. So,
1: as part and parcel of this i was involved in creation of something called healthy living pharmacy you can you can google it one of the things that we do know is that where there are areas of high health inequality people who need a lot more health get less care it's called the inverse care law it's harder to recruit doctors and the infrastructure is generally worse community pharmacy doesn't obey the inverse care law so where you've got high areas of need certainly in the uk i don't know whether that's true in the states it's definitely true in the uk those people who need the most get the least but the pharmacy is there so you if you put all this together it's just obvious so um he- healthy living pharmacy started as a project in in portsmouth which got a, a lot of um uh poor health uh, poor health literacy and so on, and I was involved in creating it as a national program. So it's now embedded in our national pharmacy contract. Now, it's a small part of that, but if you added the things that we're talking in, it could be revolutionary. So that's where I'd like to get to.
2: How much has pharmacy been kind of captured uh, on a corporate level in the UK? So here in the US, I would say that the local community pharmacy in many areas is, is a relic of the past. And instead, it's massive chains of pharmacies. And oh, by the way, those massive chains of pharmacies oftentimes have their hands in many other components of the healthcare system, including very tight relationships with the pharmaceutical companies. How much of a problem is that over in the UK? It is a
1: problem, but it's less of a problem. And what's interesting is through COVID, the only part of the health system that wasn't locked down was community pharmacy. So we took on everything in primary care during that period. And there's yeah. been a huge turnaround. So actually, for most of my professional life, there were increasing dominance by chains. So it got to the point of maybe 65% of pharm- UK pharmacies were chains, But in pretty much every area, there's still be an independent. And there's been a big sea change now. The chains are, a lot of American corporations have backed out of the UK because it doesn't just work for them. Because everything you've said is based on, is predicated upon that relationship, which I think is fundamentally corrupt and definitely not Hmm. in the interest of patients and the public. That's all reversing itself. So we're seeing chain pharmacy going ever downwards at the moment and a, hu- and a huge increase in in independence so pretty much in every area there will be at least one and if not several independent pharmacies that you can access and as the contract becomes more clinical and more about the individual practitioner and their relationship with local people and moves away from which generic can you buy at the cheapest price and spoon into people i see that going that as a potentially accelerating, and that's the way I want us to go, because still too much of our income is dominated by prescription, and none of our income comes from de-prescribing.
0: <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, none of our income comes from de-prescribing. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to state it.
2: Yeah. No, it really gets at the heart of the problem that there's no incentive to get people off medications, essentially. Now, again, we've had some conversations with other practitioners in the UK, and you would think on the surface, it would appear that at least the NHS would have that incentive because they're the ones paying the bill and they're running out of money. And so you would think they would step back and say, well, if we can get people off medications, that's going to be a big cost savings. And of course, David Unwin has demonstrated the cost savings that are achievable in, in his practice, but that hasn't spread like wildfire like you would have thought it would have in the UK. So what kind of barriers do you think are there that are preventing that from really
1: taking hold? I, if you think about smoking, because I think smoking has got a good parallel, In 19, I think it's 1979, the chief executives of Big Tobacco all appeared in front of a Senate hearing. 1979, I think it was. And they all swore that there was no relationship between smoking, lung cancer. Not in 1949, 1979. And the truth had been known for what, 40, 50 years? A long time. Let's think about it. That was simply one thing, right? No one has to smoke. And it's one thing. How hard was it to shift that paradigm? So you're talking about paradigm shift, change of mindset. And also, after, and I've discussed this with Tim Noakes, because he's also come to the same realisation, as have many of us, that you, you're brought up. Medicine is quite hierarchical. And when all your senior leaders tell you that black is white, it seems ridiculous to even think about challenging it. So we're challenging the same vested interests. We need a paradigm shift. And also we need education because even with the best will in the world, if you go to most family physicians or indeed most pharmacists and say, I'm a bit fat and I'm a bit diabetic, What shall I do? They won't have an answer because they had no education. So until we we repurpose the system, change the paradigm and re-educate the professionals, all those things need to happen. That might sound depressing, but I tell you what, I've done lots of talks for GPs. Every time I do a talk for GPs, a few of them change their practice. And once they change their practice, it happens very, very quickly because these guys are super bright. They're actually very committed to what they're trying to do. And once they see the sea change of two or three patients, it's impossible to go back. And I genuinely feel we're all on the brink of something here. So I bring you a message of hope, my friends.
2: Yeah, I definitely would echo it. I mean, I really can't think of a practitioner, did this stuff, focused on metabolic health for a while, and then kind of stopped doing it, dropped out of that. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, as as many have said. And it's just a matter of getting people, uh, getting the practitioners, first of all, to be exposed to it, and then to be open to change. And I think that willingness to Admit that you've been wrong on some level is a challenge for practitioners. It's something that I've certainly talked about, that struggle and many others. But you're right. I think once they see the results and how different their patients' lives are, how different their practice is, they all get on board. So I do, I I share your optimism. I share your hope that we're going to be able to uh, turn this around. Well, we've seen it,
0: I mean, just in the, how long have we been doing this, Phil? Two years?
2: Just about, Uh, yeah.
0: In the the two years we've been doing this show, when we started two years ago, I compare it to where we are today in terms of just the number of people who know what we're talking about, who've either experienced it themselves or has somebody that they love who's experienced it. Uh, I think about the carnivore stuff that two years ago, most folks thought that was borderline insane and more and more and more. We're seeing uh, a a wider acceptance of these more, I guess, primitive ways of eating. So, but frankly, your message of hope is even more hopeful than what I would have guessed. Uh it's good
1: yeah i I think it's ultimately unstoppable and it's because there's a group of us now who are committed to this and we're committed to working together and once you create a social movement and it's justified it becomes unstoppable i think and i tell you what else when i see the light coming back into my patients and clients eyes after eight weeks It's not the weight loss, I think. It's literally the light coming back into their eyes, the vibrancy that you see restored. It is the most fulfilling. I mean, for all the awards that we won, right, and all the accolades, I can't tell you the level of satisfaction. And I'm not saying I'm unique. I'm sure that everyone you've had on the programme, and I'm sure Philip will say exactly the same. That's what we all became health practitioners for, right? We want an income but not at the expense of the well-being of our clients and patients. And it's just, it's so exciting and it's so worthwhile. And you realize how much good you could do with your knowledge. Yeah, Yeah,
2: another profound saying there that you're right. We we don't want our income to come at the expense of our patients' well-being. But yet that's kind of the system we're in these days. So from your perspective, what is that kind of, entry point, that starting point for the person that is in front of you, and you're doing their monthly refills of their 10 or 15 medications? How do you kind of start that conversation that there might be a
1: different way, there might be a different approach? So there are two things. One is that all my teams are aware of what we do. And we haven't got the 10 pharmacies anymore, because I just don't want to do it anymore. We're down to three, but they're three very, very busy pharmacies. And we do lots of innovative practice. The majority of my clients, however, come to me through social media. So I've got clients. Come, so in that sense, if COVID did any good things, and I don't want to say there's anything good about COVID, there wasn't. But it did make people realize they didn't have to have a physical. It wasn't whether you lived next door or were close by. So I've got clients UK-wide and worldwide now who who I can help on Zoom or by any other form of social media. So most of our clients find us through our website and our social media activation. And we get a few through the pharmacies, but not the majority. But my typical client will be somebody with metabolic syndrome at some level. So they might be diabetic, they might be pre-diabetic, they might be hypertensive, they may just be overweight. They may say, look, all my family's got cancer, I don't want it. All my family... Because there is a genetic predisposition. The I as I always say, your genes might f- load your gum, but your lifestyle fires the gum, right? Or to put it another way, your genes are not your destiny. Same. So they'll come to me with one of these things and say, I heard about you, I saw your podcast. Can you fix me? And generally speaking, we can. And then where do we start? So we ask them what their objectives are, right? So within health systems, health systems have objectives really related primarily to biometric data, right? So I'm gonna give you a statin until your HDL is this. I'm gonna give you anti-diabetics until your, your blood glucose is that, right? I'm going to give you Alzheimer's drugs to remove the amyloid plaque, which isn't the root cause of anything anyway, right? As a human being, I'm not interested in any of those things. I'm interested in, can I do everything with my grandchildren who are arriving at high some some kind of speed now that I could do with my children? Can I leave a, a lead a fully functional life as a six-year-old that i that I led in my thirties? including a fully functional sex life, because I don't think that gets talked about. So I talk to people in very humanistic terms about what they want, what trajectory they want out of their life, because I think that's more of a motivator. Then I bring together the data around that. And I think by finessing those two things, you can bring people with you on the journey. Whereas if you just talk about blood pressure or cholesterol or whatever it is, It's not that meaningful, is it, in human terms? So I think it's translating the two things. So that's very much my approach. We're very data-driven. We're very outcome-driven. But the outcome has got to be about quality and length of life, not some other kind of metric, which doesn't really mean very much to a human being.
0: I, I love that. We're a whole lot more interested in the quality and length of your life not whatever numbers happen to show up on a on a test.
1: Yeah, because let's face it, most of those tests aren't, right? I mean, if you're looking at your cholesterol profile, right, what are you really worried about? You're worried about the risk of a heart attack. Sure. Why don't we just do, as, I mean, as Philip makes very clear in the book, let's do a CAC score and let's see what your actual risk is. My lipids are not great, right? According to the UK Q-risk, I should be on a significant dose of statins. But my coronary artery calcium is basically zero. I'm not going in with a million miles of a statin, I can tell you. But then I give people the confidence to come off their statins and explain why, what the risks are, numbers needed to treat, numbers needed to harm, risk-benefit relationship and all of that stuff. And often it's about giving people the confidence to challenge the system and say to their family doctor, you know what? I want you to support me. I don't think I need a statin. I want to change my lifestyle first. So it's all those things.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah. Look, why don't we get into that a little bit? Because we've certainly explored this topic, but uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Because, again, you're in many ways trying to get people, trying to empower people to understand that what they've been told is truth is not actually truth. And there's a different perspective on all of this. So what do you find is a useful, is an effective way to get people to, to open their, to recognize this?
1: It's interesting. So there's a whole area of the use of medicines called compliance and concordance. Compliance is, the doctor says, take an atenol every day. And the patient says, yes, doc. In other words, you're in charge. I just do what I'm told. None of that really works very well. So we know, and we've got the evidence, that of a newly prescribed medicine, 10% of people never take the first dose. Within a month, a third of people stop taking it altogether. But they still go and collecting their prescriptions because they think they're keeping the doctor happy. So what I'm saying is, actually, people don't want to be on a tonne of medicine. This idea that people just want a pill for every ill. And as David, I mean, David Unwin gives them a choice, right? He says, well, I can give you the metformin or I can give you some lifestyle advice. Which way do you want to go? And he says 60 or 70 people, a percent of people will pick the lifestyle. So if you empower people, give them the alternative, but then explain what they need to do and how they get there, rather than just sort of saying, well, eat less and move more and all this bullshit, it's not that difficult because I don't think people – the the evidence is overwhelming that people don't want to take medicines. And to give you a very good example, there was a fascinating study of people with HIV – and there were two cohorts. So they looked at the group who went on to develop full-blown AIDS and looked at the cohort who did relatively well. And they looked at everything. And the ones who did relatively well were compliant with their medication. And the ones who did poorly were poorly compliant. Now, that's true of, of heart transplants, kidney transplants. So you kind of think if you were up against that, I mean, that's you're pretty much up against certain death, right? You would absolutely take every dose of every medication by the clock. You'd assume. Almost no one does because you don't want to. You're just not convinced. And actually that kind of level of doubt. And can I also be very clear? I'm not part of an anti-drugs cult. I'm not saying that no one should ever take a drug. If I had cancer, I would take the bloody drugs. And if I went to someone like Philip and Philip said, you know, you should be on a statin, I would absolutely take them, right? So I'm not irresponsible. I'm not saying drugs have no place. They absolutely do. My concern is they should never be the first choice. And there are lots of other things. And even where you are taking the medication, add the lifestyle changes to it in, or instead of it. So that's where I am with it.
2: Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. When we're talking to people about not necessarily that the stat isn't fixing their problem and we're not saying ignore your problem, we're giving them an alternative way of more effectively managing their problem ultimately. And that's something that I I do think is key for people to understand. Because when people come to me and they say, "I, I have early stages of heart disease I have this high cholesterol. I have inflammation. I have metabolic syndrome. Should I take a statin? And my answer is always, if you're going to address the root cause of your metabolic syndrome and your heart disease, and you're going to basically shift your physiology to a point where the statin just becomes not necessary, that's the way to get off the statin. It's not that you just stop the statin and keep eating all the the processed food that you're continuing to eat. That isn't a responsible way to go about this. But that nuance is oftentimes what gets lost in these conversations, and especially when you're on social media and people are saying, well, you're just anti-statin. And the answer is no, I'm trying to get people to the point where the statin
1: is no longer needed. Exactly. Exactly. and, and based on the objective approach, 100%, 100%. Yeah. So I'm not saying no one should take a statin, but I reckon probably of all the people on a statin, 1% of, the, of, of them are benefiting and 99% are, are not. And you could probably evidence that.
2: Yeah. And that's exactly the other part of the conversation is that people are led to believe that these medications are the answer to their problem. And yeah. kind of get sold that the medications are much more effective than they actually are and have much less in the way of unintended uh, consequences uh, than they usually do. And that that's the problem we, again, find ourselves in. But ultimately, the person in front of you, they need hope. They need a plan. They need an alternative. And like you said, when I have that conversation and I give them the alternative of, Yeah, you can stay on all your medications and eating what you're eating and living the way you're living, or you can change what you eat, change how you live and get off these medications at least 60, 70. I would say probably close to 90% of people say, sign me up for for the lifestyle uh, changes when you can actually give them effective lifestyle changes. And and again, that's what we've uh, also done such a lousy job of in the past is we give lousy lifestyle advice. So that doesn't work either. And basically people fail their way into medication is the only option.
1: Exactly. So when doctors and other physicians say, oh, with people not interested in lifestyle advice? What they mean is I know nothing about the lifestyle advice. So I don't know how to give it. I'm really ineffective at giving the advice. The advice is all wrong and it doesn't work. It's a criticism of them. It's actually not a criticism of the patients and the clients, but they don't perceive it. Quite true.
2: Quite true. Let's talk about maybe some of the sort of practicalities of doing this. So, you, I think, have a fairly unique perspective with the continuous glucose monitor. Again, I guess the scope scope of practice is a little different for pharmacists in the UK, such that you can directly if i understand dispense the continuous glucose monitor here yeah. in the u.s you need a doctor to prescribe it for you but what what do you
1: see when you give cgms to people so i had a client earlier on today we to for breakfast whole grain bread based pizza for lunch and potatoes and rice and a bit of salad for supper And an energy drink in between. An ostensibly fit, healthy guy, right? This guy hasn't yet got metabolic syndrome, and he's not particularly overweight. He just feels not great. And he's not having radical highs or low lows. So if you went to his family doctor, you'd say, you're fine, carry on, right? What I explained to him is, we're measuring blood glucose. We're not measuring insulin. If blood glucose here and insulin is here, you're healthy. But if blood glucose is here, but your insulin is, like you've got 10 atmospheres of insulin controlling your blood glucose in a desperate fight to control it, that's very unhealthy. And that's where this guy is. And then I said, if we look at an average day, I reckon we we worked it out. He's having about 50 spoonfuls of sugar a day in his healthy whole grains. And I said, look, your bloodstream at any one time is supposed to have one sugar lump in it. And you're having 50 spoonfuls a day. And then I said, let's look at it another way. Let's forget energy, because I think people get very confused about energy and nutrition. We don't need much energy, by and large, because we're not running marathons every day, most of us. But what we do need is nutrition. And so I explained to him, he's getting a ton of calories that are going to make him sick. But he's not actually giving his body at hardly any of the micronutrients that he needs. So he's, so he's going to be deficient in vitamins, in minerals, in healthy fats. So there's a double whammy. And I could see the light bulbs coming on. And then we go stepwise. So we worked out that his sugar spike is the worst sugar spike is his breakfast because he's eating Weetabix, because that's got to be much healthier than the alternatives, right? (laughs) (laughs) And he he, he won't be having eggs, will he? Because it will wreck his cholesterol and give him a heart. Anyway, so I explained all this. So we go stepwise, right? So when people can see in real time what's going on, and it's like looking inside yourself. And then you explain that energy isn't really what we're talking about. It's nutrition and they're completely different, although there's a relationship. And then you say, well, let's just go stepwise, right? So we don't go from there to there in in one go. We know where he wants to be. And I said, I'm really pleased because I met you in your 40s. If I'd met you in your 60s after you've had your first heart attack and you're type two diabetic, it will be much worse and there's much less that we can do. The sooner we start, the less damage has been done, the longer you've got to more to benefit. Once you get to type 2 diabetic, you can put it into remission, but I think your metabolism by then is quite fundamentally broken. This guy isn't anywhere near that. So we go stepwise and we go in a logical order to deliver to the patient, stroke client, what the outcome they want. And I say my ambition is to get you exactly where you want to go at the least cost, by the most direct route, with the least pain. And we're on a journey together.
0: That seems like, that seems reasonable.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it's not how health systems don't work like that. They will just incentivize you to, con- they'll pick a number of biometric data, your cholesterol, whatever it might be. And then you just keep using drugs until you get them under control. Box ticked, you get paid. Next, please. Mm. It's mad. Absolutely mad.
0: Um, So... As I understand it, prolongevity is that the, well, I mean, in the U.S. we'd call it telemedicine, but I don't know if that's the right word.
1: Uh, yeah, you could call it that.
0: Uh, yeah. And um, is this available only to folks who are residents of the U.K.?
1: No, nope. we've got clients worldwide, not in large numbers, but we've got clients in the USA, So long as they can access a blood glucose monitor which as Philip says, that isn't as straightforward in America. But you can always find someone who will write you a script for a CGM, right? And I'm quite certain it will. they'll be available without prescription before too long, because there's just no justification whatsoever for making it a prescription product. Well, um, at least not for huh? the
2: patient. Uh, yeah, no justification from a patient standpoint. I kind of put forward that the consequences of having these things more widely available is perhaps what keeps them uh, from being uh, widely available. Because yeah. um, if everyone got to see what's really going on, it would have profound effects on our on our food uh,
1: choices, our food environment. And yeah, I think it will. But I also think it's a bit more complicated. So when I give my talks, I say, Diet Coke's been available for 20 years. Decent and effective blood pressure monitors have been available for, I don't know, 20 bucks for 20 years. And in the last 10 years, Fitbit have delivered, what, 100 million devices. What's happened to health over that time? (laughs) Yeah. It's a combination of Diet Coke... Blood pressure monitors and Fitbits are going to solve the world's problems. They're pretty bloody slow about it, aren't they? So what's missing in all of this? And I believe what's missing is a human guide with a humanistic approach that can bring all that stuff together and and explain what it means and tell you how to use the data. The data is invaluable. And I pick up people's sleep apnea from their Fitbits. They're great devices. But someone's got to explain what it means and how to do it. And I think we're a long way from getting to that point with AI right now. It might get there, but we're not there.
0: That's a whole nother path, which yeah. I think it'd be fun to go down, but we're not going to do it right now. All right, so I'm going to throw it to both of you, because what I'm hearing from you, Graham, is the same passion for helping people get healthy that I know Phil has. And both of you have chosen similar paths to deliver that service to the world. So I want, I'd, I'd like both of you to take off your, your professional certification hats. Phil as a surgeon, you as a, pharma, uh, a pharmacist and put on the hat of health coach and talk to our audience as their prospective health coaches. How can you help? And what do people need to do next?
1: You want to go first, Phil? I've done all the talking up to now. Well, yeah, so I, I
2: think it really starts with, you mentioned this before, what are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? I think getting people clear on that is a very important first step in this. Uh, because if they don't know why they're doing it, if they don't really know where they're trying to get to, You can give them all the advice in the world and you can show them all the data, uh, but if they don't have that sort of internal reasoning for doing that, it's not going to be successful. So you mentioned that's where you start and, and that's where I start as well. My new consultations with patients always start with that question. Like, what do you want to accomplish by us working together? And then I think once you establish that, It then becomes the matter of, like you said, figuring out where we're at, doing the testing, doing the assessment, giving them the tools to understand what's going on on sort of a daily basis in their bodies and educating them on how they
1: can then change that. Yeah, I completely agree. I always say to people, we called our program Prolongavity for a reason. We didn't call it reverse diabetes or reverse metabolic syndrome because actually a long and healthy life is much more profound than the absence of illness. So as health practitioners, we tend to think of of all these things about being about the absence of illness. To me, that's just first base. That doesn't deliver happiness, does it? And I think the other paradigm that I talk about a lot is if you don't die of diabetes, but you die of cancer. Three months later, what's the net benefit? And all these scare stories and all these drugs, they focus on the one thing and ignore everything else. So I always say to people, the only thing that interests me is all-cause mortality. In other words, what's my risk of dying of anything? Let's focus on that as a goal. So let's reduce our risk of dying of anything and let's look at how we can have the happiest, most functional life in those circumstances so it's genuine paradigm shift stuff and I think that is much it's more empowering I think people find that more compelling and it will make them work a bit harder because these things are not easy giving up the pizza hut and the too much beer and not enough sleep and and never none of those things are are particularly easy they all we live in a world now right where Disease has distinct from disease. Nobody wants any disease, right? We never want to be hungry. We never want to be leave our chair and you can sit in your chair 24-7 and Alexa will bring you absolutely everything. You don't even have to get out of your chair. We don't want to, right? There's no discomfort in our lives. We're never cold, we're never hungry, we're never short of anything. And actually, that's not what evolution designed for us. Evolution is designed, and I talk a lot about something called hormesis. And the way I explain hormesis is what doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. And I explain this thing called positive stress. So whether it's getting too hot and then getting cold, so sauna, cold plunge, whether it's going periods without eating very much. Is that what the five... What was what do you call it? It was the five two is that the idea? It's kind of time restricted eating. So I take people on the journey, and my journey around eating is first of all, just get rid of all the ultra-processed food. Let's collect your meals into three meals a day, three solid, decent, healthy meals a day. Let's not snack in between meals, right? So now we're eating three meals a day and we're not snacking. Now let's Reduce our eating window to 12 hours. So there's 12 hours when we're not eating and 12 hours when we are eating. And I start to explain how that starts to improve our metabolism at the level of the cell, at the level of the organism. And at some point, I'll talk about apoptosis and and things like that, but that's kind of further down the track. No, you're not. I
0: I just want to put a pin in this right here. Yep. Okay. I want to have an episode where someone like Graham. And Graham, this is who I want. <laughs> really, I'd l- and, and it, it won't be wildly popular, but there's a small subset of people who want to hear the technical scientific details. Yeah, yeah. Graham's just given us the thirty thousand foot view on. I'm just, I'm I'm making a request. Yeah, yeah. I want him back on the show. I want the show <laughs> to be highly scientific, highly technical.
1: Okay. Yeah. So keep going. Now we're at the point where we're not snacking, we're going without meals for 12 hours, but we're not struggling because we're just not hungry. Do you need all those three meals? Are you hungry for all three meals? Why don't you just skip one occasionally? Okay, so now some days we're only eating two meals and some days we're eating three. Those two meals a day, are you equally hungry? What about just one meal that day, once a week? OMAD, one meal a day. Okay, so now we're doing three meals one one day, two meals the next, one the next. What about we skip the one? Now we haven't eaten for 48 hours and we haven't even thought about it. We're not hungry because your body has become fat adapted and it does what it's designed to do, which is when there's no food coming and you just burn the fat, that's what it's there for. So it's a simple stepwise process and it doesn't need to be that hard So that's the kind of food. And then we start to talk about other stuff. So one of the things I talk about a lot, which nobody talks about, is sleep. So if you want to kill a human being by depriving them of something, the fastest way to kill a human being is to not give them any fluid, right? They'll be dead within maybe a week, if at best two weeks, Phil, yeah? Fair? Yeah. If you don't let them sleep for two weeks, they'll also be dead. But if you don't let them eat, they'll probably live for six months, maybe 12 months. Sleep is so fundamentally important and it doesn't get talked about. So at some point we go deep into not just sleep, but sleep architecture. And I explain all that goes on during sleep and how that is our health foundation. Ignore it at your peril. So, this is multifaceted and it's absolutely fascinating. So, we look at all these things and also exercise. So, I slightly feel I was was going to
0: say, it's really interesting. We're an hour into this conversation, and this is the first time we've talked about the point where we discuss exercise as in this
1: fitness journey. I think in the low carb community, We've got the relationship between the importance of exercise and food slightly wrong. I have reviewed, revised my whole approach to that now. Actually, partly based on Peter Attire's new book, Outlive. Now, I know we all have some doubts about Peter Attire in terms of the statins and his obsession with cholesterol. And I think he's wrong about that but I don't think we should be prejudiced and say he's wrong about everything because I absolutely don't believe he is. I think he's right about exercise. And the example he gives in his book, if I talk about VO2 max, does that mean anything to you? It will to Phil, I'm sure. I know
0: know what it is, but it's mostly because I know Phil. (laughs)
1: Right. So VO2 max is your maximum ability to, to use oxygen. Absolute maximal, and if you take a sing- if you could only take a single metric of healthy longevity, that would probably be the single metric, because that is an estimate of your entire metabolism from what you breathe in to what you breathe out, and every single cell. And what Atia says, and it's pretty science based, if you take a smoker with a high VO two max against a non-smoker with a low VO two max the smoker will live longer. That's pretty striking, right? That's
0: pretty blunt, yeah.
1: Blum. So I talk to people a lot about exercise and how to grow their VO2 max. And I also talk to them a lot about resistance exercise. So how can we have the ben- best cardiovascular benefit? And that doesn't involve r- running multiple marathons. Absolutely doesn't. And how can we retain muscle mass as we age? Because that is so important. So I very much take a balanced scorecard approach to all of this stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the only pushback I would give against that, and certainly I agree that the muscle building, the resistance exercise part of this is important. I'm not sure that the high intensity training to improve your VO2 max is as important And what I would push back on is maybe that a person with a high VO2 that's not metabolically healthy is I don't think is really going to get the benefits of that. So in some ways, I look at VO2 max as maybe another component of the metabolic health, the underlying metabolic health, the underlying metabolism that goes into the VO2 max. And I just, I think for most people... The 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 targets that Dr. Atia sets are, are maybe not a realistic because the time limitation is really where you start to run up against it. That yeah. is probably most people's most precious resource is their time, and if you're going to focus that time. It, it takes a lot of time to achieve these high level VO2 uh, max training. So, but yeah. I think we're all in agreement as these are the components when sleep and all of that sleep, stress, activity, and what you're eating. These are the basic building blocks that we need to be paying attention to. And again, when you empower people with this information and with this kind of framework, this mindset as to you can spend your efforts focusing on these things or You can just keep taking the medications and probably not going to end up very well for you. People usually come to the, this is worth putting effort into.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I see this a lot. You'll see it, right? Young, fit, healthy men who have a heart attack. How could that possibly happen? They're the picture of masculine health, but they're on fire inside. Mm -hmm. So I completely agree that if we obsess about cardiovascular health and ignore everything else, We're completely missing the point. What I'm saying is I think we've gone a bit too far the other way. Yeah. No, yeah,
2: certainly you can't ignore it. I I agree with that. Well, this has been, you know, amazing. And as Jack said, we're going to have to have you back for the deeper dive, the more scientific dive. But I think we've given people a pretty good introduction as to what you do. So for the many people out there who are going to be saying, I want this, how do they
1: find you, how do they get in touch? So the, the easiest way is just to go to our website, Longevity, one word, Longevity with Pro in front of it. And you'll find us there. you would find there's lots of blogs and interviews and information and, and stuff there. Have a look at that. You can contact me through the website. Or, or I'm, I'm a big fan of Twitter or whatever it's called this week. I hope Elon Musk doesn't completely screw it up for us all. My Twitter handle is at Graham S. Phillips, G-R-A-H-A-M-S-P-H-I. L-L-I-P-S. Either of those will get you there. But most people just Google either Graham Phillips Pharmacist or Prolongevity, and you'll find us.
0: Fantastic.
1: Just one more thing, Phil. Sure. I just want to really take my hat off to what you, for what you're doing because I've read the book. We've obviously interacted on social media and various things. And you're so right. So I see are on the program and I've had other people. And... It's not easy to go against the paradigm. And to some extent, we're both trying to do the same thing, which is put ourselves out of business, right? Because we're not, you'll be earning a lot more money prescribing statins and stenting people than you will doing this. And I just think this is so important. And I think that should be recognised. And I just, I thought the book was fantastic. And I would say just the FAQs at the end, in many ways, that was the best bit of the book for me because you you did such a broad spread of answering all the questions that I get asked. So I know we're not here to plug the book, but I'm plugging it for you. Thank you,
2: much appreciated. And yes, the feeling is mutual. Keep up the great work. I think Pro Longevity is a great resource for people.
0: Well, I want more. We've gone an hour. We promised we wouldn't go longer than that. So for Graham. S. Phillips, two L's, the pharmacist who gave up drugs, Dr. Philip Ovadia. I'm Jack Heald. This has been the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast, and we'll see y'all next time.
1: Thank you, guys. It's been a blast.
0: Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.